So we're looking this morning at Mark 9 uh, and from verse 33. Astonishing really that only a few verses on from where Jesus has been teaching his disciples that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of men and they'll kill him and then he will be raised on the third day where he's been teaching about his death for sinners and his serving the world in that way that his disciples should be taken up with whether or not one of them will be the greatest or who will be the greatest. And in the next section, the next paragraph, taken up with some jealousy towards someone from uh, another background who is presuming to cast out demons in Christ's name, someone who they don't particularly recognize. And as they go to, or as they come to Capernaum and they're there together in the house, he asks them, he puts his finger on the sore point. What was it that you were arguing about as you went along, as you journeyed along? And we read that there is an embarrassed silence. They held their peace. They knew what they'd been talking about and Christ knew what they'd been talking about. That they, by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. This was what they were talking about as they walked along. Uh, Today, uh, you're allowed to walk one with one in the pandemic situation. Uh, What a subject would that be, to be walking along and discussing who is going to be the greatest among you? Well, that's what... Uh, they were discussing. They were in a very ungenerous frame of mind. But it is encouraging too to see the reaction of Jesus to these uh, poor responses by them. It's a very kind reaction. It's, It's an instructive reaction. He doesn't blast the face of the earth off with them. He doesn't let rip at them, but he is full of truth and full of love. And we read that in verse 35, he sat down, he sat down. He takes up the posture of a rabbi, actually, of a teaching rabbi. He's going to teach them. He's going to show them a better way. And we have to say that this is the way in which God deals so often with us. If we are his people, he deals with us like this that he shows us a better way because he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. And he shows us and teaches us from his word, whether it's through our personal devotional readings or whether as we gather together. And what he's going to teach them in these few verses is this, what true greatness is about He sat down and called the twelve and said unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. And we learn firstly from this that true greatness means living close to Christ. 
living close to Christ. There was something there when he asked them the question, what were you arguing about? There was something there that meant that they couldn't just be open about it. They were, hit, they were ashamed. They were embarrassed. There was a, a, an area that wasn't open. A, and that's really living at a distance from Christ. When there are areas in our lives that we're ashamed to expose, we're ashamed to bring to Christ, it's clearly something that's not right. It's something that needs to get sorted out. Now that can happen through perhaps one of two ways. The first is there may be a problem, but in fact we may be wrong in thinking that we are doing wrong or that there's something wrong in us in this situation. I'm thinking of Romans chapter 14 and the issue of people having a, an overscrupulous conscience in the days of the early church, an overscrupulous conscience about what they can eat and drink or what uh, days they, they hold as Sabbath days and the like. And there is the issue that some would have a bad conscience when in fact they were doing nothing wrong. There was liberty for them to eat particular foods now that Christ had come and the New, New Testament era had, uh, was underway. But it was still a problem that they couldn't do it if they hadn't faith in this matter. So the apostle says, Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. And he that doubteth is condemned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. In other words, the, the matter there is to sort out the problem, to come to the Bible, search the scriptures, understand what the scriptures are saying, and be... Uh, walking with the word of God. But whatever, don't have a hidden patch in your conscience that you are unhappy about and you think that God is or may be unhappy with you over this. Search it out. Sort it out. Read the Bible. Read Christian books. Ask for help and understanding. Perhaps other Christians. But don't have areas that are no-go areas. And then, of course, there is sinful living at a distance from Christ. Something that really is wrong and shameful, and it is the case here with these disciples. They have been disputing among themselves who should be the greatest. Now, it isn't totally sinful because there is a sense in which we should all be the best that we should be and could be. There's a sense in which uh, the Lord Jesus doesn't tear a strip off them just simply because they want to count for something. They want to be significant. But what he does is to direct their thinking into a better channel. He says, yes, to be significant, to be great, to be, to be important in the kingdom of God is a worthy aim. But this is how you do it, not in the way that you're thinking. And therefore, we need to learn straight away that we need to be instructed and taught and not live at a distance from Christ. So true greatness, firstly, means keeping close to Christ. And secondly, and clearly, true greatness means service. Serving God, serving Christ. There was nothing wrong, yes, in wanting to be great. But what was wrong was the way they were computing greatness and the competitive spirit they had. 
among themselves. They were comparing themselves with themselves and trying to lift themselves up on each other's back, as it were. Now, this is very much the thing of the world, is it not? The world is chasing fame and status, uh, and the world is promoting itself. It's all about me at the centre. The world's service is often just a way of disguising self-promotion. But true service, Jesus says, is something very different. It's not having me at the centre, but it's having a humble and meek and teachable heart and a serving heart. And he shows this by bringing this child, taking this child, setting him in the midst of them. He becomes a kind of object lesson, a parable, because children in those days were considered very insignificant indeed. There was no child-centeredness in society It was not a child-centered society in ancient Israel. And so he he takes someone who would be seen as being really not even worthy of consideration, and he says, now, if you see this child as someone valuable for my name's sake and receive him, because you're receiving him, you're receiving me, and if you receive me, you receive the Father. He's turning the whole world's concept of service upside down. We think of many places in the teaching of Christ where he does this. Let me just refer you to one or two briefly. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, beginning of that chapter. Take heed that you do not your alms or your good deeds, your giving before men to be seen of them. Otherwise you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine arms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest arms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine arms may be in secret, and that thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. So there has to be giving and doing good with as little self-consciousness and self-promotion as possible. Obviously, literally, you cannot not know what you've given or what you've done. Obviously, we mustn't take Christ's teaching here in a literalistic way. Let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. What he means is self-consciousness should not be there. Self should not be in the middle of this. And it's very helpful, therefore, that your giving should be done secretly. But mind you, I've seen secret giving done sometimes, which really does draw attention to itself. It's a very subtle thing. Giving which attempts to be secret, but really is a kind of blowing of your own trumpet. Let's be careful in that area. Or in Luke 14, verses 7 to 11, just one other example He put a parable to those which were bidden when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honourable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and him that come and say, him come and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. Not scrambling for the place, 
of honor. And it's not, obviously not just limited to dinner parties and tea parties and lunch, lunch occasions. It's a whole approach to things, to status. You see, true leadership and true greatness is not about being seen and admired and having control. It's about humble service. And we think of what that meant in the lives of the apostles. We think of such as the apostle Paul. We think of uh, how he endured all things for the elect's sake. How that meant uh, shipwrecks, beatings, imprisonment. Now he didn't do these things because he had a martyr complex and in that way trying to draw attention to himself. He did these things because he was pursuing the kingdom of God and his glory. We must put to death ambition and the desire for preeminence. We must crucify it with Christ or reckon it dead with Christ on the cross. Let me quote to you something here that J.C. Ryle, the uh, 19th century commentator, wrote. He says, It is an awful fact, whether we like to allow it or not, that pride is one of the commonest sins which beset human nature. We are all born Pharisees. We all naturally think far better of ourselves than we ought. We all naturally fancy that we deserve something better than we have. It is an old sin. It began in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve thought they had not got everything that their merits deserved. It is a subtle sin. It rules and reigns in many a heart without being detected and can even wear the garb of humility. It is a most soul-ruining sin. It prevents repentance, keeps men back from Christ, checks brotherly love and nips in the bud spiritual anxiety. Let us watch against it and be on our guard. Of all garments, none is so graceful, none wears so well, and none is so rare as true humility. True greatness, then, means humble service. And our response as individuals to those who are without importance and without position, and we're thinking of this little child who Jesus sits, sets in the middle of them and says, your response to this child is a measure of your response to me and therefore to God Almighty. Our response to one another and those without position or importance is a measure of where we are with God in this matter. It's a measure of how much we are following Christ. If you welcome one such, he says, in my name, you welcome me. You know, there are people who are considered very, very insignificant in society and people perhaps not very easy to welcome and get on with. And churches pick them up more than other communities. Our response to such is a measure of our response to Christ, is it not? True greatness means service. But thirdly, true greatness means a generous kindness. Let me read to you verses 38 to 41. And John answered him saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us, and we forbade him because he followeth not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not. 
For there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name because ye belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his rewards. Here in this incident, again the disciples do not shine, just as they haven't shone in the way they've been discussing who among them is the greatest here. They do not shine in the way in which they react to this person who is not named. Perhaps he was one of the disciples of John the Baptist. But this person who is not named, who is not one of the disciple group, who they see casting out demons in the name of Christ, and they want to stop him, they want to forbid him. And it's the Apostle John here who speaks like that. The Apostle John, who later on in the New Testament, we know him as the Apostle of Love because of the teaching on love that we find in John's Gospel and in the letters of John particularly. But here he shows that at this point he has much to learn in that area of love. True greatness means generous kindness, even if he or she followeth not us. That seems to be the real problem with this person. He cast out demons in thy name, which would not have been particularly um, welcomed by the disciples because they'd had a major failure in that area after they'd come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. They found nine of the disciples unable to cast out a demon out of the boy possessed of the deaf and dumb spirit. So they wouldn't be particularly happy about this. Your human nature, shall we say, wouldn't be particularly happy about this. But here's this one. He's casting out demons. He's doing it. And he followeth not us. And we can just imagine the religious jealousy which the disciple cloaks with religious pious language. He's not one of us. Their own inadequacy exposed. And there's no generous kindness there, is there? He followeth not us. Now, Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ is not here saying, well, anybody who does anything uh, good or philanthropic is therefore someone who is on our side. He's not saying that, but he says, no man which shall do a miracle in my name can lightly speak evil of me. He's talking about the casting out of demons. And we know in another place in the gospel that Jesus says that the devil cannot fight the devil. Uh, we can't have a situation, you can't have a situation where a house is divided against itself because it falls. So clearly this person is not on Satan's side. He must be on God's side. He must be working for Christ in some way, even though he's not one of them. But how easy it is to become jealous and possessive and want to be cloaking it in the religious language of piety. How easy it is to want the, uh, to be one of the inside group and to have no kindness and no generosity. The Lord Jesus, notice, just says, forbid him not. He doesn't say you have to totally throw your lot in with him in every way. 
But he says at the very least you have to recognize and respect what he is doing. Now I think there's a a big application here, friends, and it's to do really with true greatness in Christian service. It's to do with how we recognize and respond to those who do love the Lord, who are gospel people, and yet they perhaps don't agree with everything that we think. They're not from our tradition, we would say. They're not from our denomination or background. And here Jesus is teaching us to avoid bias of the wrong sort. He's teaching us to be open-hearted and generous in how we view others. As J.C. Ryle says, when it comes to this matter of casting out demons, better a thousand times that the work should be done by other hands than not done at all. We need to have a very generous, open-hearted attitude. You think of the uh, response of the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Philippians to those who were preaching the gospel while he was in prison, but they were not, some of them were not doing it for a very good motive. They were doing it to get him into trouble. He says, some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. There are others who preach with a good motive, but there are those who don't preach with a good motive. But what he says is this, what then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, and yea, and I will rejoice. It's a positive, generous attitude. That's greatness, is it not? It's greatness when we see it in the secular world, but it's also greatness when we see it among Christians, when we're not jealous of blessings that other believers are experiencing, but we may not be experiencing, when we're not jealous or upset when God blesses situations that we don't approve of. It was a terrible difficulty to the nonconformist churches of the 18th century when God began a revival in the Anglican church. Through Wesley and Whitfield, some of them just couldn't accept it. They couldn't take it. Read about Whitfield in Scotland and see how he was treated by some, not all, but by some of the Presbyterians there. Oh, that is, of course, uh, failing to take account of what Jesus says here. He that is not against us is on our part. Let us have a generous, gentle, kind, serving spirit, brothers and sisters, for Christ's sake. Amen.